0: I was thinking about making a t-shirt for this morning, but I thought about it too late, so I didn't have time, and the t-shirt might be a little shocking, but here's, here's what I was think- could, thinking could go on it, and I'm going to explain what I mean in a second, so please don't walk out on me immediately. I was going to have it say, Christians, the original atheists. No? Not something you'd wear proudly? Some of you who know your church history will know what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't have to trust that I'm getting somewhere with this. When we think of atheism today, we, we often think about the, uh, the, the loudest voices in the atheist discussion. and uh, We think of Richard Dawkins, who believes that um, scientific method has pushed away the need to postulate any sort of God, and so it is foolish to believe in one. Or we think of Chris Hitchens, who's passed away now who believes that religion is the root of every evil in the world and we would be good do well to eradicate it. Or we could think like Freud, who believed that religion is just kind of a projection of ourselves. And then we project our own desires and thoughts and call it God and call it a day. There's all these thoughts about atheism. Atheism just simply means not God. There is no God. Christians, we obviously believe there is a God. So I'm getting there. Last week, I talked a little bit about an old person. A person who was a disciple of John the Apostle. His name was Ignatius. And I talked about uh, how Ignatius, as he was going to Rome to be thrown to the wild animals, uh, went there with steadfast determination that he was going to do this. Well, I want to talk to you about another ancient person. His name is Polycarp. Polycarp was a contemporary of Ignatius, and he too was... It's been suggested, a disciple of John. So we're back to the early church. And he, too, was killed. A lot of the people in the early church suffered this fate. They suffered martyrdom. <coughs> he was bound and burned at the stake. But as, uh, as later people would point out, and I, I can't vouch for the veracity of this, but I love the account. It's been said that when he was at the stake and they lit the fire, do you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Thrown into the fiery furnace, the flames wouldn't take them? Well, the flames wouldn't burn him. And so he just stood there in the flames, looking out at everyone. They had to stab him before he would die. But as he was going to his death, the crowds in the Colosseum were shouting this phrase, Away with the atheists! Away with the atheists! Away with the atheists! It was their call. That's what they were shouting out. Now, can you believe that? They were accusing Polycarp of being an atheist. Well, the proconsul urged him to recant and said, Swear by Caesar! Repent! And say, away with the atheists! And by this, the Romans meant, away with the Christians. And Polycarp, I, I like to think there was a little bit of a sly grin on the side of his face. He looked out at the crowd and said... Away with the atheists. He turned it around in the crowd. And that apparently was the last thing he said. But in the ancient Roman world, there were many, many gods who were worshipped. And now we know from our Jewish heritage, spiritual heritage, that, um, and from the, the New Testament as well, from the Christian writings, that there are no other gods. God is one. We'll worship him only. But the Romans believed that there were many gods, and there were many shrines set up to many gods. Cities had their own patron deities, their own gods. Rome itself was based on the goddess Roma, who was worshipped. Every social occasion that you would go to in ancient Rome was the celebration of one god or another. That's just the way that their society was structured the guilds of fishermen, the guilds of bakers, and all the tradespeople throughout the ancient world, they all had their own patron gods that they would sacrifice to and worship in order to to partake in business. And so along come these Christians who weren't well-known like the Jewish people as they were starting to differentiate themselves from the Jewish people. These Christians came along and they wouldn't participate in this. They had trouble... Chris and I were talking about this last week from Revelation. They had trouble at times um, purchasing food because they refused to bow down to the patron deities of the different guilds. They refused to participate in society that was based around the worship of all these other gods. So when the Romans looked at the Christians, and furthermore, look at the Christians—they um, they had no shrines in these days. They had no temples. They had no altars. They had no images. They had no sacrificial rites. They had no priesthood. And so when the Romans looked at these crazy people, they thought, you look like a bunch of atheists to me. You're not serving our gods. Don't you know how this world works? Christians, the original atheists. Okay, maybe the t-shirt would be too misleading. So don't do it. But I want to talk that, that that kind of discussion about what the ancient world thought about all the gods and how the Christians were different. That's going to set the foundation for the virtue that we're looking at today. We're going through a series of the virtues in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11. through 11. There's a list in there. The list begins with faith. Because everything springs out of faith, our allegiance to Jesus. And the list ends with love, because everything we do in life points toward love. And Peter, I keep reminding you, there's only one more week in this series, tells us to make every effort, he says it twice, make all the more effort to develop these things in your life. Virtues don't just happen, we don't just wake up virtuous people one morning. It takes work, and it's difficult. The virtue we're looking at this morning is godliness. Last week we looked at endurance, which is, just by way of reminder, I defined it as a stubborn resistance in the face of suffering and evil. Endurance is the ability to stand firm and resist all the chaos around us and follow Jesus. I talked about how it's a pathway to hope because Paul said to the Romans, suffering leads to endurance, endurance leads to character, and character leads to hope. I talked about how it's a quality of love, and some people chatted with me about that afterwards. Our traditional wedding vows aren't the most romantic according to today's standards, right? I'm going to stick with you, whether I'm sick or poor, or no matter what happens, times that are worse, yeah okay, let's stick with it. Those are essentially the wedding vows, the ancient vows, because they knew that endurance was required in a marriage relationship. And then I finally, I close by saying it's a quality of Christian leaders, and this is especially important as we're electing board members uh, this next week. The ability to stand firm no matter what comes and have endurance is such an important quality. But Peter says that endurance then leads to Godliness. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Let's hear the text again. It's from verse 2 Peter 1. I'm just going to read verses 5 to 10. For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness, and goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with endurance, and endurance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection next week, and mutual affection with love. For if these things are yours and are increasing among you, they keep you from being idle and unfruitful Is the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For anyone who lacks these things is short-sighted and blind, and is forgetful of the cleansing of past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in case you didn't catch it the first time, make all the more effort. Confirm your call. Election. The reason I spent so much time at the beginning of this message talking about the ancient Roman world is because godliness is is uh, is more of a Roman thing than a Christian thing. It might be surprising to you, but godliness was a prized virtue in the Roman world. It wasn't so often referred to in scripture. And when it's referred to in scripture, it has a a subtle nuance that I need to bring out. Godliness in the ancient Roman world meant, like I suggested before, knowing the gods and how they were meant to be served. Because different gods received different sacrifices, they were worshipped in different ways. And again, when I say gods, I'm not talking about anything real. I'm talking about the idols that ancient Rome worshipped. They, were all, they all had their rights, the way that you would properly approach their God, and you would seek them for the things you needed in your daily life. If you were going on a trip by sea, you might want to petition Neptune, right? It would make sense. They, you know, Neptune had a temple in the south side of Rome, and for Neptune it was appropriate to sacrifice a bull. So that's what you would do. There's four... Ro- this is way more than you need to know. But If you ever decide to become an ancient Roman worshiper, it might come in handy. Please don't. There were only four gods in the Roman pantheon that you could sacrifice bulls to. There was Neptune, Apollo, Mars, and Jupiter, and I'm not going to get into what they all did, but essentially, you had to learn how the gods... Expected to be worshipped so that you could get what you wanted from that god. If you wanted to be safe on your journey at sea, you would offer the right sacrifice, which is a bull, to the right god in order that that god would hear your petition and grant you what you request. The Roman deities actually function kind of like, um, you know, when you go into the sportsplex, that concession thing between the double doors on the left-hand side where you put your money in and then you pick like A4 and a Mars bar falls out? (laughs) (laughs) I'm making fun of them because this is worth making fun of. The way that they approached their gods was, okay, let me get the right currency. It was transactional. Let me get the right currency, my wallet's in my office. Let me get the right currency, pick the right numbers on the slot machine, and if I get it all right, then that god's gonna give me what I want. And when just circumstances worked out for the favorable, they'd think, oh, my sacrifice worked. <clears throat> when it worked out unfavorable, they're like, oh, I must offer the wrong sacrifice. They would never call into question the actual structure. But this is what godliness meant in that ancient world. Godliness meant knowing the gods and knowing which god to go to and how that god should be worshipped. So it doesn't mean that for Christians. Because... The God, the God, the maker of heaven and earth, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the giver of the spirit, the true God, it's not like a slot machine. It's not like a concession stand. It's our relationship with him isn't transactional. And sometimes we can slip into this mindset where it becomes like that, and that's when we get into all sorts of trouble. We, um we begin to think that, you know what? I really need to, make, to, to God to speak to me clearly about a decision I have to make, so I'm going to fast for a week, and if I do that, then God will do this. If I do fast for a week, then God will give me the answer. Put in the currency, fasting for a week, receive the answer. Fasting is a good practice. I've, don't get me wrong in this. I'm just saying it's not a currency. We can never leverage God God is always the sovereign one. We can go to him. We can ask things of him. We pray to him. We submit our lives to him. And we trust him. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who created the heaven and the earth that we worship on Sunday mornings and throughout our lives, is not like the gods of ancient Rome. So godliness then must have a bit of a different meaning when we're talking about Christians. And it does. I want to tell you a story about two bushes in the Old Testament. I brought my favorite translation of the Old Testament to read because I like how Robert Alter writes. I'm going tell you two quick stories from the Old Testament that's going to give us insight into God. The first one is from Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, as we know, listened to the voice of the serpent, who said, if you take and eat from this tree, you will not surely die. God knows you'll be like him, knowing good from evil. And so Eve took, and then Adam took, and they disobeyed God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking about in the garden in the evening breeze, And the man and his woman hid from the Lord God in the midst of the trees of the garden. And I imagine a little bush with Adam and Eve kind of tucked in behind. You can't see. You ever ever play hide and seek with a really little kid? And they'll go like this. And they think you can't see them? That's what Adam and Eve are like. They hide behind a bush or a tree and think that God can't see them. But God calls out to them, where are you? He said, I heard your sound in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. He said, who told you you were naked? And the story goes on. I'm just going to pause it there because I'm not preaching on Genesis chapter 3 this morning. It just, it shows us God and humanity. There's another story about another bush in Exodus chapter 3. One book later in the Old Testament. And in Exodus chapter 3, Moses had already been raised to be something great. He had let his anger get the better of him and he killed an Egyptian who was oppressing a Jew, one of his own people. And he fled away into the wilderness. And just like Adam and Eve were hiding behind that bush in the garden, I picture Moses hiding away far from Egypt, far from where he was supposed to be, doing his own thing in the wilderness. Herding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He came to the mountain of God, Horeb. And the Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And he saw, and look, the bush was burning with fire. And the bush was not consumed. And Moses thought, let me pray. (laughs) It's a good thing to think. Let me pray turn aside, see that I may see this great sight, why this bush doesn't burn up. And the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, and God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And God said, come no closer. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. Like a little kid playing hide-and-seek, because he was afraid to look at God. I think these two stories really illustrate what it means, what the root of Christian and Jewish godliness is. Originally, the word group kind of means to take a step back, to leave a respectful distance. But in both stories, you have a God who was not manipulated or controlled. Right? When Adam and Eve were hiding, God wasn't fooled. When Moses was away out in the desert looking after his father-in-law's cattle, God wasn't surprised. He was there already. Didn't give him a chance to hide behind the bush. He lit it on fire instead, which I think is a great thing. In both stories, God was someone who is to be feared. Not in the sense of ah! terrified. <laughs> Although, I, I, I would believe, I'm <laughs> sorry, lady, did i make you jump. <laughs> Not in the sense of being terrified. Although, I, I think in a relationship with the, the true God, there might be a little bit of terror lurking on the edges of it when we realize how awesome he is. But in the sense of awe, respect, piety, honor, and that's what this word godliness for Christians means. It, it means that we don't, like the ancient Romans, serve these gods that if we put in the right coin and press the right buttons, we get what we want. But we serve a God who is in charge. Uh, when Jesus was called the Messiah, it was understood that he was a king. The word Messiah would be understood as the Jewish king. When we hear about Jesus the Messiah, it's talking about King Jesus. Jesus is exalted to the highest place. He is the Lord of the world. And in response to that, our attitude should be godliness. An awesome, deep respect and fear in the deepest sense of the term. That word godliness... Isn't used like I said a lot in the Bible, but it is used in one particular book when Paul wrote to Timothy. If you remember the book of First Timothy, uh, Paul is near the end of his life. He's uh, he's likely in Rome at this point. He's expecting to die at some point. He's encouraging his little young padawan or grasshopper to uh, follow in his footsteps, right? To, to do the thing. And he's he's urging him to be a good minister. And again and again and again, he uses this word godly. We should be godly, and I wanted to point out just a few of them to help us understand what this means and how we might work on this quality in our own lives. The first thing that we learn from the book of First Timothy about godliness is that godliness is centered on the life of Jesus. Godliness is centered on the life of Jesus, who is the exact representation of God. He is the icon, the image of God. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, Without a doubt, the mystery of our religion is great. And that word religion, in the original Greek language, is the word godliness. I don't know why they translated it to religion here, but this is what he's talking about without any doubt the mystery of our godliness is great jesus was revealed in the flesh this is an ancient hymn we we sing all these songs today this was a hymn that was from the earliest days of the church he was revealed in the flesh we're talking about jesus here he was revealed in the flesh he was vindicated by the spirit when god raised him from the dead he was seen by angels he was proclaimed among the Gentiles around the world. He was believed in throughout the world, and he was taken up into glory. Godliness is centered around Jesus Christ and his story. And I will just give you a little preview. Um, as we, we're about to approach the season of Lent, which leads us to Easter, and where we're going to go in terms of messages on the Sunday mornings is we're going to look at the gospel. What is the gospel and how do we respond to it? Um, I'm going to frame it along the lines of not being not ashamed of the gospel, as Paul said in the <coughs> Romans. But this is the gospel. The gospel is a story about Jesus who was revealed, vindicated, observed, proclaimed, believed, and taken up into glory. And when we take time to reflect on what Jesus actually did. I know we've been singing the last song, What a Beautiful Name, quite a bit lately. But the more times I sing that song, the more I reflect on the depth of it. It tells the gospel story of Jesus who was exalted, who came down, who died for us and was exalted again. That is the gospel. And when we truly catch a glimpse of that, the natural response is just to stand in awe and to be amazed to be godly, to be reverent. Godliness, we're told, thrives on good teaching. Godliness thrives on good teaching. When he talks to Timothy a little later in chapter 4, he tells Timothy to be nourished on the words of the faith and the sound teaching that you have followed have nothing to do with profane myths or old wives' tales. Have nothing to do with profane myths or old wives' tales. Just, just before I go on, just leave that there. Profane myths. Like if you offer the right bull to the right god, you might be protected at sea. Right? Have nothing to do with this Roman sort of worship. Have nothing to do with these profane myths or these old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself in godliness. For while physical training is of some value... Godliness is valuable in every way. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Train yourself. So Peter says make every effort to develop godliness. Paul says train yourself in godliness, in this reverent fear of God. We need to be discerning about the teaching that we take in. One of the blessings and one of the curses of our world today is there are multitudes of teaching out there. If you turn on Lifehunter.3, you'll get a whole smorgasbord. I never know how to say that word. D? Thank you. Smorgasbord of teachers who will be teaching you. If you uh, search up religion in podcasts, you will get. Oh man, search up. I'm using my son's language now. That's that's how he says it. If you search for uh, teachers on the internet, you can get podcasts from everywhere. In the Bible app, right? We get devotions from so many different sources. We need to be discerning about the, the sources that we take as teaching. Because false teaching can steer us away from godliness. I've suggested before that the transactional sort of teaching that if we give God something, we get something is so prevalent in our world today. It's really obvious in a, in a painful way in, in the uh, prosperity gospel where, you know, if you will just send me a gift of $100, God will bless you a thousandfold in return. Um, I mean, if you want to send me a hundred. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> or if you do this or if you do that, God will do something else. This is rooted in consumerism, right? Because if I go to get a coffee at Oliver's, I will give them, well, I have a lot of Oliver's bucks in my car, so I will give them a few Oliver's bucks, and they give me a hot, delicious cup of coffee in return. That's a transaction, and that sort of mindset slips into our way of thinking, well, God, I was there every Sunday for the whole spring, and I worship you, I sang all those songs for you, so now could you just do this? I give, you give. transaction. But it's not like that. Sound teaching increases our godliness when we realize that God is the creator of heaven and earth and he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our offerings. What does he say in the Psalms? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I was hungry, do you not think I would tell you? He's good. He loves us and desires our worship but he loves us purely because God is love. And that should inspire reverent awe, godliness. Godliness and contentment belong together. In, uh, a little later on in 1 Timothy 6, 6-10, we read, of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. Isn't that true? We brought nothing into this world, we'll take nothing out of it when we leave. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. This is another interesting feature of godliness. Paul says godliness is good when it's paired up with contentment, with satisfaction, with being content with a little bit of food, a little bit of drink, clothes for your back. When godliness is paired with contentment, it is a good thing. Certain things just go well together. I think this is an appropriate, timely Illustration, a Cadbury cream egg has tasty delicious chocolate on the outside and you crack it open, (coughs) you're all going to get cream eggs after this, it's got this gooey white center with, does it still have the yellow bit in the middle? I used to, yeah it still does. And you can eat, you can use your tongue and eat the goop out of the middle of it alone, (laughs) and then you can eat the chocolate. But word to the wise pop that whole thing in your mouth all at once, chomp down, because the two things together just are a match made in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) The, The same is true with godliness and contentment. When we are content, not always striving and searching and desperate for something, but when we are content with what God has given us, godliness with contentment is a great thing. We're called to make every effort to develop this in our lives. I want to tell you one more story. you have time for one more Bible story? Yeah. I guess no one wants to say no because you'd be embarrassed. So. <laughs> I want to share one more story with you. Listen to this. This is, from John, uh, this is from Mark. This is the story of Jesus, but it's in all the Gospels. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. I always imagine, you know, um, the the cartoons of The Incredible Hulk where he flexes and his shirt busts off. (laughs) I always have this picture in my mind of Jesus going, and his glory going, There appeared to him Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, uh, Rabbi, it, this is, it's good to be here. Let me make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. you ever been like that, when you're afraid and you don't know what to say, so you just babble and you keep going on because you're not sure what to say, so you keep moving. That's what Peter was like. He saw Jesus' glory, and he was afraid. And he's like, ah, I'm going make a tent for you. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice This is my son, my beloved, listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore with them, just Jesus. Theologians talk about the imminence and the transcendence of God. But I like to use a more relatable theologian. I have <coughs> the next slide. I've shared this with you before. <laughs> But no one explains this deep theological concept better than Grover. When he does that old skip from Sesame Street that you remember, he'd run near and then he'd run back. Go far. (laughs) The crazy thing about God is he is near and far at the same time. And it's so important for us to grasp, to understand how to develop in godliness. I would joyfully affirm that Jesus is closer to us than ourselves. He is the air we breathe. The Bible tells us that in him all things hold together. We are quite literally held together right now by Jesus. He cannot get any closer to us. When we pray, we don't have to shout. We don't have to raise our voice. We don't have to megaphone at the sky because he's closer to us than our thoughts. He is near to us. That at the same time we can never forget that He is the one through whom the universe was created. He is the majestic Lord of the world. He is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. At the same time, Jesus is intimately close with us and so far beyond us that we cannot. Grasp, grasp it. And I think if we have a, te- it, it's, in times of our lives, we go back and forth. Sometimes we emphasize his closeness, oftentimes in worship services. Sometimes we emphasize his, his farness, um, his, his, his transcendence. We emphasize these different elements of God at different times in our life, but I, I think the Pentecostal temptation is to really emphasize Jesus being really close and kind of lose sight of how majestic and awesome God truly is. We, we, we emphasize this close relationship which we do have and we can lose sight of the fact of how amazing God is. So I want to invite you, if you want to make every effort to develop godliness in your life, to develop this reverent sense of holy awe before the creator of the universe, this is a radical, radical thing to try, but just ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask him in your time of prayer. Say, Lord, would you show me your glory? We sing songs about it. Would you show me your glory? And see how God reveals himself to you. Now, I have to warn you, it might not be comfortable. When God showed himself to Isaiah, Isaiah said, woe is me! I'm coming undone. I'm so impure. When he showed himself to Ezekiel... Ezekiel collapsed like he was dead and couldn't get up until God sent his spirit to put him back on his feet. When God showed himself to Jeremiah, he said, I feel like there's fire enclosed in my body and I, I have to let it out. When he showed himself to John, the revelator, who wrote Revelation, he collapsed like he was dead. I invite you, if you feel that godliness, this divine sense of reverence, not transactional, but a divine holy awe of God, if you want to develop that in your life, just ask God to show you his glory and see what happens. The good news is, he always picks us up. So in conclusion, I want to encourage you to be a good old school atheist. Don't fall for the gods of the world around us. Don't fall for this transactional sort of religion where we, if we give something to God, he'll give us something back, make these pr- quid pro quos. Ah, I watch the news. Um, right? Don't make these with God, but instead honor the creator of heaven and earth, who is so far above us that we can't possibly imagine it, yet has souped so low that he lives with us. Catch a vision of God and let our lives of obedience flow out of that. Amen. Amen. Invite like the band to come back up. We're going to close with the song we started with. To stick it in your head as we leave. For God so loved the world that He gave. It really speaks to this transcendence and this imminence. God so loved the world He gave. He was far; He became near. But as they're preparing, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your great, great love for us. Thank You that You so loved the world that You gave Your only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Lord, thank You for Your promise. Thank You. Holy Spirit, You know what we need. Because You are closer to us than our own thoughts. So I pray that You would work in all of our minds and hearts and inspire us with the words that You shared through Peter all those years ago. May we make every effort, Lord, to develop godliness in our lives, rooted in faith that leads to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.